Hey everybody, um, thanks for listening to our podcast and to this first episode um, on the first week of our new series, Stories We Tell. We had a little bit of an audio mix up this week, and so you're going to hear a little bit uh, of a jump from this sounding audio, which is me recording a note later, and then we'll pick up uh, with the actual recording from our Saturday service. So that's why it's going to sound a little different, but all the content is here, and once again, I just want to thank you for listening. So. With no further ado, uh, we'll get started. Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you again. Tonight, we're kicking off our summer series titled More Stories We Tell. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at famous stories from the Bible and exploring them as stories, which is to say, as ways the authors of the books of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, talk to their hearers over time about who God is, who we are, and the work God is doing in the world. We're going to begin by looking at the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2. But before we get there, I want to set the stage by talking for just a minute here about the when of storytelling, which is to say, I want to talk about the significance of the moments we are in when we talk to each other about the work that God has done. This past week, while I was visiting my family in South Carolina, we watched a movie called News of the World. It's a Tom Hanks movie from last year, and if you have a chance to see it, I'd say I recommend it, but you don't need to go out of your way. It's, it's fine. But in any case, the plot of this movie revolves around a man named Captain Kidd, who travels through Texas in the years after the Civil War, and he reads news from around the country to people in towns where news is hard to come by. And sometimes these readings go well, and sometimes they go poorly, and that's kind of the drama of the movie. But in what is probably the centerpiece scene of News of the World, Captain Kidd is in this isolated town that's dominated by this racist business magnate who's in the bison trade. And he is either indentured or enslaved, it seems like everybody around him in the town, into the work of butchering and selling bison skins and skulls for his own profit. It's all really gruesome. There's lots of CGI dead bison everywhere, and it's gross. But in any case, this in this scene, our hero, Captain Kidd, is more or less forced by this rich guy into a news reading that evening that's supposed to be all about how great the rich guy is and all the awesome things that he's done in the community. He's given this like kind of fake local paper that he's supposed to read from. But in an act of rebellion, Captain Kidd instead decides to change the script and he reads a news story to the people who are gathered together that's about these coal miners in Pennsylvania who have heroically survived this cave-in that was caused by the negligence and the greed of the coal company that they all worked for. And as he's talking, it it becomes clear that the listeners there get the idea. They are like those coal miners. They also are sort of victims of the negligence and greed of their own kind of overlord. And so they start to get surly with the rich guy, and then the rich guy gets angry at Captain Kidd, and stuff happens, and there's a dramatic escape. And you can kind of imagine how things turn out in the movie. But the big idea at the center of the scene, really the big idea at the center of the whole movie, 
is that when you tell a story matters because part of listening to stories is seeing yourself in them. And that can give stories real power, even beyond the facts of what they're reporting on. A story can be a corrective if it's told at the right time to the broken ways of the world. Now this matters for us tonight because as we look at the creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it's important for us to think about when these stories were told, when these stories were written down, and what might have made these stories about God's work in the world resonate and connect for those hearers of the stories. And then it's also important for us to place ourselves in that same framework too. If the words of Scripture are the words of God, which is what we believe, then the work that those words can do, those stories can do, can stretch beyond the moments when they were written down and they can reach all the way to us. So we need to ask, sitting here now in our own when, what mistruths or what lies these stories can correct and what these stories can teach. So that's our work this evening, to try and see what work these stories did then for the ancient Israelites who preserved them, and also what work these stories do now for us sitting here in Annapolis some 3,000 years later. To tackle that first part, there are some things that I think we need to know, right? First, we need to know that the stories that we have in the Bible spent most of their lives as oral traditions passed down by the Israelites from the earliest days all the way through their enslavement in Egypt and their delivery to the promised land and then through the reigns of the judges and then the reigns of their kings and the divide of their kingdom and the eventual, eventual collapse of their nation and all the way through their exile into Babylon in the 6th century BCE. And then amidst that exile, these oral traditions found their way into writings which were copied and recopied all the way up to the present where we still have them. So this is the first when question we want to wrestle with tonight. What makes writing down these stories at that moment when the Israelites are emerging from the great disgrace of destruction and exile, what makes it writing them down at that moment so significant? To get to the answers to these questions, we need to know a second thing, though, too. And that is that the Babylonians, the Israelites' conquerors, their enslavers, had their own creation stories, too. Their stories also, of course, trace back to oral traditions and even written traditions in Mesopotamia. Now, now, still, we have some of these stories, and we know some of them as the Enuma Elish, which is the oldest existing creation narrative there is. And it's one with noteworthy similarities to the story in Genesis, which freaks people out sometimes. You can see all these similarities for yourself if you're curious. You can find translations of the text online. But for our purposes tonight, I just want to quote actually a little bit of it, this brief part from the opening. And it begins like this. 
When the heavens above did not exist, and earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order, their begetter. And Demi urged Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together before meadowland had coalesced and reed bed was to be found, when not one of the gods had been formed or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed, the gods were created within them. From here in this ancient story, there's this great war among the gods whose bodies after the war become much of creation. And then in time, the god Marduk emerges supreme, and then he makes from the guilty blood of his rival mankind, and he does all that in order for mankind to serve as the god's helpers in maintaining this sort of battle against chaos. Now, much energy has been spent by theologians and scholars trying to determine if one of these ancient texts is copied from another of these ancient texts, or if all of it arose from some common oral tradition behind them all. And then even more energy than that, I would guess, has been spent by Christian path pastors like me and Christian authors arguing for the historicity of the Genesis account of creation, right? And working through the scientific plausibility of the stuff that the Bible says happens. And I want to say that I think all of that work is worthwhile. It's worthwhile work. But it's not part of how this particular series here at Revolution works. What we want to do instead is to consider those questions from that Tom Hanks movie, from News of the World, about the why and the when of the story. Remember, the story Captain Kidd read about the coal miners was a true story, but that's only part of the point of the story. What also matters is that he tells that story to those people at that moment to serve as a challenge and to serve as a corrective to the culture that they are living in, to serve as a challenge and a corrective to the culture that they're living in. So, if the Israelites then are living in the culture of the Enuma Elish, and its story there about an empty void within which warring gods spring into being and then create all things in the wake of their conflict, what does their own memory of the creation story have to say to that environment? Let's look at the answer, right? Let's look at Genesis. Genesis 1, 1 through 10 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God goes on in the verses that follow to create more things in the subsequent days, right? First vegetation and then the sun and the moon and then fish and birds and then animals. And at the end of the sixth day, in verses 26 through 27, we find this. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this, this is the creation account of the Israelites, told for generations and then finally written down in the wake of their time in Babylon. So why tell this story then? Isn't it richer to consider the answer to this question, not in denial of the other stories that surround the Israelites, but in relationship with those stories. What's different in these two accounts? Well, for the Babylonians, the gods bring chaos to the void. For the Israelites, one god brings the void into order. For the Babylonians, the world we live in is made of the fallen bodies of the deities that are killed and rotting on the ground. And then for the Israelites, all the world is God's intentional creation, beautiful and rich, because it reflects his creativity. For the Babylonians, the gods live in conflict with one another, and human beings are this afterthought that are brought forth from the blood of their greatest traitor. What about for the Israelites? In Genesis 1, human beings are image bearers of God himself, Given similar work as the work in the Babylonian story, they're order keepers in the garden of the world. But they're not servants in the Israelite story. They're, in fact, at first co-rulers, co-laborers. Do you see the difference between the stories? Can you start to see what it means to tell this story then? how it challenges the assumptions of the world that the Israelites are living in and creates for its listeners a vision of a different kind of relationship with a different kind of God than the ones the people around them know. Now much has been made of the oddity of the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 present different stories about creation. In fact, in the church that I grew up in, which I feel like we hear about all the time, and where, this is a whole other story, we'll have to tell another time, because I already know this sermon's too long, but I almost got arrested there a few nights ago. But don't worry about it. It was an accident, and nothing bad happened. But an alarm went off, and things were, were not great. But all was fine. Another time. At that church. <laughs> Whew, I don't know why I did that. Um, much time was spent at that church trying to convince me and other young people in the church that what we see with our own eyes... <laughs> when we read the Bible, simply isn't so. I was told growing up that, no, these two stories in Genesis 1 and 2 aren't 
different stories. No, in fact, Genesis, Genesis 2 is just like zooming in on Genesis 1. You may have heard that language before in your own upbringing. But if you have your Bible open in front of you or an app with your Bible in it open in front of you right now, take a look at it and look for yourself. And I would suggest that what you'll see is that there's really no way around it. There are two separate and differing stories. In Genesis 2, Scripture says really plainly in verse 5, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You can't get around it. The days are mixed up here. We have people with no plants. Even more, after man is created, plants and animals are created in Genesis 2. We know because Adam's going around naming them, and he gets discontent. And then it's sometime way later that the first woman is made from Adam's rib. And this is hard to square, right, with Genesis 1, when man and woman are created together in the shared image of God. And here's the thing, right? There are folks whose entire faith crumbles when they discover these contradictions. But that doesn't need to happen. Surely the Israelites who told these stories for generations upon generations, surely the Israelites who wrote the stories down were not illogical fools who were unaware of this potential tension. It is supremely arrogant to believe that we're the first people to ever have the capacity for logic to be like, huh, those days are backwards. For thousands of years, people could have straightened it out if they'd wanted to. They saw the tension too, and yet, they not only kept the faith through it all, they didn't write it down and then be like, ooh, my faith is dead. Like, I can't square all this anymore. They wrote it down and copied it for a thousand years. So we can ask another question, right? We can ask instead of how can these contradictions exist, we can ask instead, what work do the Israelites believe this story is doing? What work is it doing? Where the Babylonian stories talk of men made from the blood of guilty gods, the Israelites tell a story about people who are instead formed from the dust by God's own hands in his own image and then filled with his own breath as their life. In Genesis 2, it's clear Human beings are central to God's creation, not afterthoughts. We're called to his special and his loving purposes. If Genesis 1 is a story about a different kind of God, which I think it is, Genesis 2 is a story about a different kind of relationship between God and human beings. It's a story of purpose and hope, and a story where God is committing to a continuing role among his people, even when they stray, as they do in the chapters to come, and even when they're in the midst later of their punishments. So what does that story mean to the Israelites, broken and humiliated and enslaved? How does that story correct the story 
that they are living with there in Babylon day in and day out. The writer Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the preeminent living Christian scholars in the Old Testament, debatably, you can, you can at me about this later if you want, if you have strong Walter Brueggemann feelings. Anyways, he summarizes the point of the Genesis account and its difference from the Enuma Elish like this. He says, the Israelites begin their holy scriptures with a creator creating creation. A creator creating creation. And what he means by that is that their God, who's also our God, is distinctive in these three specific ways. First, we worship the creator of the world, not just the God who managed to conquer a world that was already creed. And this is important for a reason you may not have thought about before, but it's crucial. It's important because it infuses Israel's worship and our worship with a commitment to justice a commitment to justice. If their God made things, and things seem to be broken all around us, then he can be trusted to both recognize that brokenness, being the creator of those things, and also can be trusted to be powerful enough to do something about it, to repair it. The Babylonian gods can't claim both of those things at the same time. Only the Creator has the right and the ability to judge. Second, we worship a God who is creating, a Creator creating, the ING. That means our God has been and continues to be working to bring things in the world into alignment with His unique plan for it as the creator, right? He is creative, meaning that he has a vision for a world that is more than its past, that can flower still and can grow still. Whereas for the Babylonians, order in the world is the only way to prevent the spreading of chaos, for the Israelites, chaos isn't fought, it's replaced by a loving and creative purpose for all things. And the third thing is this. We worship a God who has made this creation. This creation. The physical world we are in is precious to him. It matters to him. It's not some terrible place that we will one day escape from. Nor is it some cosmic battlefield. God has intentionally made this particular planet, this particular universe. And as Genesis 1 affirms over and over, what does he say about it all the time? He says it's good. Genesis shows us a story of a creator creating creation. And that story, written down some 2,500 years ago, is a corrective to the mistruths of its own time. This story is is an affirmation of who God has revealed himself to be. That story is true, particularly in the sense that it taught people who God is, who we are, and what his plans are for the world. But in addition to being true, it's a story that's holy. A story that's holy. Because it's a story that's actively inspired 
by the actual Holy Spirit. And this is why we're still reading it. It's why we still revere it. And if God is who he has revealed himself to be, then it's also a story that should never stop resonating with the people who read it. That's the difference between Genesis and a news article about workers in a coal mine, right? God's words have this mystical, this divine power to always have something to say, no matter when they are read. But we have to read them with that power to challenge us in mind. So as we close today, as we move towards closing, and eh, we're, I don't know, 19 minutes, I'm doing my best time-wise. But as we move to close today, that's what I want us to do. I want us to ask ourselves, what mistruths do the creation narratives of Genesis correct for us now? What mistruths do they correct for us now? Why do we still need to believe in a creator creating creation? What beliefs in our own culture need to be challenged? And the truth is that some of that work is work for you to do, not work for me to try and do here in five minutes. As you take all of this stuff in and as you let it shine a bit of light into wherever you are right now. But there are a few things that I think we can talk about together, too. I think we need to be reminded that God is the creator because we, too, live in a time where it is common to believe in chaos and in chance at the root of all things. And that comes at a cost that we don't always see. The cost of a world of chaos for the Babylonians and for Americans is that we lose any right to justice. If there is not will, if there is not intent behind the universe, there are no grounds from which to say this is not how things are supposed to be. Now, that doesn't mean we have to always know how things are supposed to be. I think often we don't. But it does mean that those convictions that we carry about innocence and about guilt and about abuse and about inequality, those convictions only matter if they flow from a belief in order and purpose in creation. When we read the Genesis account, we can still be convicted and reminded that whenever or whatever our fears or questions are about God, we need God to anchor our belief in justice. So we can start with that. If justice is something that you are passionate about, how might your passion find more purpose and more power if it is connected to the kind of God that Genesis tells us is out there? Second, we need to be reminded that God is creating because we need to become comfortable with change. We need to remember that God is creating because we need to become comfortable with change. Our culture right now is dominated by such deep, deep polarization, and that polarization comes from a desire to dig our heels in, right, and entrench ourselves in our beliefs, which is to say... We tend to believe that our job in this world is defending ourselves. 
and those that we agree with. But that is a scarcity mindset. That's a scarcity mindset that is at odds with a God who is still at work creating stuff. A God who is actively telling a story that he's not finished with yet. We need to learn to be comfortable as people who are still in the process of listening to him, who are still seeking to know more and more about all that he creates. A God who is creating is a God who requires, in other words, humility and questions and patience from his creation, never arrogance. So the question is, are you humbly seeking him? Are you a listener? Are you patient? Get really practical and just ask you, are you a person known to the people around you as someone who is patient? Because these are practices and behaviors that need to define your attitude if you believe in a God who is a creator creating creation. And that gets to the last thing, right? We need to be reminded that God is creating creation because that old specter of spiritualism has never gone completely away from 3,000 years ago to now. Our culture, particularly the religious landscape of America, from evangelicalism to New Ageism to astrology to whatever it is, our culture wants so badly to believe that the problem that we're all dealing with is this world. It's this world. We're too attached to things. We're denying our spiritual selves and our spiritual essences. Or on the flip side of that kind of New Ageism, maybe this view, right? That the world is only here for our exploitation and our abuse. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to zap us all away from this mess anyway. So who really cares if it's burning down around us? But none of that neither the hyper-escapist spiritualism of a person who thinks that the physical world doesn't matter, and we're all just spirits who need to ascend somehow, or the, like, cynical materialism of people who believe the world's just something to be exploited because it's not going to last anyways. None of that makes any sense, any sense at all, in light of the story that Genesis tells. God loves this world. He says over and over again that this world is good. To try and ascend from this plane to some purely spiritual Zen place, or to treat this place as a hell that we will one day escape from, these are both things that are lies. They're mistruths that Genesis corrects. God loves this world, and this world that we are living in reflects Him, and it still does. Our job is still to be a co-laborer with him here, a gardener here. How can we better love and tend what God has made? I'm going to close with a few simple challenges based on, well, all of this, right? The first is this. Know God. Know God. He's real. We need him. We're made for relationship with him, so listen to him. Talk to him. Actually talk to him. Build that rhythm of talking to God into your day. Sounds 
simplistic maybe, but it's true. And you can do it. And you can do it this week. Build the rhythm of talking to God into your day because he's real and you need him. Challenge number two, know others. God is telling a story that's bigger than the two of you, right? The world isn't just you and him. So to see what he is doing beyond you requires that you listen and learn from other people. Don't focus, in other words, on what you're defending all the time, digging your heels in, getting ready for battle. Instead, ask people questions. Have the courage to ask people questions. Ask questions of your neighbors. Ask questions of your coworkers. Learn stories. Learn the Enuma Elish if you would like to. You don't need to be afraid of those things. Have the courage to learn more about the world that God has put you in. And then on that same note, the third challenge is this, no creation. No creation. This might sound like a strange challenge, but also it's maybe the easiest of them all, right? This week, I want you to go for a walk. I want you to go for a walk. Listen. See. Wonder what it is that God loves so much about all of this. Try to figure out what he's revealing about himself through it. Take a walk. Those are your things. Talk to God. Listen to other people. Take a walk.